Okay, we're looking at 1 Corinthians at the moment as a church, and we're looking at the subject of unity. And the way that we're doing that is that we're looking at how we are united together as a church, what things unite us together as a church. Because Paul says, I'm losing my thing here, right? Paul says in... He says in chapter 1, verse 10, that if we focus on the things that unite us as a church, there won't be any divisions amongst us. And that's what we want. We want to be united in the purposes of God and what God wants to do amongst us. And actually, to focus on what unites us makes complete sense. Because I don't know if you've ever noticed how easy it is to fall out with somebody when all you can see is their faults. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, it's easier to fall out with them. Or if you just focus on things that you differ in. Because what you focus on consumes you. What you look at is what you become. And what you aim at is what you're going to hit. So what you focus on, what you give your attention to, is incredibly important. So we want to focus on the things that unite us. And so today, uh, last time we looked at our mission, the mission that we're on, today I want to look at the cross and how the cross unites us. Well, I mean, it's an obvious one, isn't it? Because the cross immediately has two powerful unifying effects. Firstly, this vertical relationship between God and man, that through the cross we become united again with Christ. We become one with God. That which has been severed, that relationship that's been broken by sin, we're rejoined to God. But also there's this other thing of the horizontal relationship that God brings us into. So this cross, the horizontal relationship where God puts us together with other people who are also in relationship with God. So through the cross, we're united with God, but at the same time, we're made a part of the body of Christ, this new community of people that are called the church. And the church is amazing. I mean, it spreads through all time. It spreads through every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And every people group are going to know about Jesus. That's what the Bible promises. So can you imagine what the church is going to be like? And that happens instantly when we're born again into the family of God. But if you've been around any time, as I have, and I'm younger than I look, you know that there are some complications that occur from time to time when it comes to people. People getting on, people uniting together. It can be a bit tricky And the unity at times can be challenged or it can be shaken. So what keeps us in? What keeps us as part of that community? And I just want to give you three things. There are lots more, but I just want to give you three things from this passage that we're looking at. I'm going to read to you 1 Corinthians 18 to 31, but we're going to focus mostly on verse 18. So let's just read the passage. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 to 31. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Now Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many of you were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom of God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. Three things that hold us together. Three things. Number one, our faith. Number two, our need. And number three, our salvation. That's what we're going to look at, focusing on verse 18. First of all, our faith. Verse 18 says, for the message, and that literally is the preaching of the cross, is foolishness to those who are perishing. And that's not very encouraging, is it? It's not very encouraging that the message that we have to preach, that's the mission that we're on, the message of the cross, is foolishness to people. And even preaching, in verse 21, Paul tells us, is a foolish way of communicating the message. So we're struck out twice, two foolish in one. The message is foolish and preaching is foolish. And people can come up with all sorts of ways, so there's much better ways of communicating than preaching, getting people to sit and listen. It's foolishness. Think about it. I mean, why the cross? Why use this method of torment and suffering, probably the worst ever invented, to resolve the sins of the world? Couldn't there have been another way of doing it? Couldn't there have been a less macabre way? of resolving things. I mean, where is the logic of one man dying for everybody else? I mean, if you think about it, if you'd never heard the message before, you'd say, where's the logic in that? It doesn't make any sense. I didn't wash with the Jews. I mean, they were waiting for a completely different kind of Messiah. They were looking for this powerful Messiah who would vanquish their enemies, throw out the Romans, calling down fire, subduing nations, ruling them with a rod of iron. They wanted a kind of angry, powerful Messiah. The Greeks didn't like it particularly. They were looking for a new kind of cleverness. They were looking for some kind of intriguing philosophy, something to debate, a theory to intellectualize. What they wanted was the kind of religion that would lead intelligent people only into an exclusive club. That's what they were looking for. And the rest of the world, well, what are they looking for? I mean, if you look at the gods of today, 
You've got celebrities. The celebrity culture of beauty and wealth, image over character, those are the gods of today. They're very shallow gods. They're up and they're down and they're gone in a moment. Or maybe if you believe what you'd see in films, blockbuster movies, my wife went to see Iron Man this week on her own without me, and my son, I had a text halfway through a very spiritual conference that I was in saying how she was in love with a certain actor. Well, that's what I read anyway. It made it worth wanting. Yeah. Anyway, I have forgiven. Um... You know, if we're looking at what the world says, they're looking for some kind of superhero. Somebody who's powerful and ultimately indestructible. That's the kind of Messiah the world wants. And I remember thinking when I was growing up, oh, I wish Jesus would come down off that cross and beat them all up. That would show them. It's in us, isn't it? We kind of, oh, you could have shown them, Jesus. There's a song my grandparents used to say, sing. You could have called 10,000 angels. I wish he had. <laughs> kind of superhero kind of God. Nothing like the man on a cross whose features were so distorted by the beatings he was barely recognizable as a man, whose weakness and vulnerability were so publicly and humiliatingly displayed. I mean, the, the kind of figures we see, he has a loincloth, No, completely naked, completely humiliated, barely a man. Why would you want a Messiah like that? I mean, who would want a saviour like that? Who would even recognise God there? Who would? Paul says this isn't a message for the wise and the clever. It's not a message for the attractive or the powerful. It's not a message that attracts the influential. In fact, a lot of them won't even get it. The message of the cross makes no sense to the world. This came home to me recently. I was reading the book, The Life of Pi. It's far better than the film, let me promise you. The Life of Pi, and it's a book by Jan Martel. I don't know how to think that's how you say his name. But there's a fantastic chapter. It's worth getting the book. It's very cheap at the moment on Kindle, okay, as a tip. Uh, it's worth just reading the chapter that he calls When I Met Jesus Christ. It's just so interesting. Pi is an Indian man, a Hindu, and he meets Jesus for the first time by hearing a story about him. And his first reactions to the cross were amazing to me because I'd never seen it from somebody's point of view that never has never heard about Jesus before. This is what he says. The first thing that drew me in was disbelief. What? Humanity sins, but is God's son who pays the price? I tried to imagine my father saying to me, Piscine, a lion slipped into the llama pen today and he killed two llamas. Yesterday, another one killed a black buck. Last week, two of them ate the camel. The week before, it was painted storks and grey herons. And who's to say for sure who snacked on our golden agouti? 
The situation has become intolerable. Something must be done. I've decided that the only way the lions can atone for their sin is if I feed you to them. Yes, Father, that would be right and logical to do. Give me a moment to wash up. Hallelujah, my son. Hallelujah, Father. What a downright weird story. What a peculiar psychology. And he goes on like this, just in awe. And he says, I couldn't get Jesus Christ out of my mind because he was so different from all the other gods. Wonderful, wonderful section. But get this. The message of the cross is foolishness. It defeats logic. It frustrates intelligence. It isolates clever people. It confounds the teachers of logical thought and turns man-centered philosophy on its head. So why should we be surprised that people don't get it? Why should we be surprised that mere argument isn't enough? Why should it surprise us that unless God turns up, nobody's going to get saved? And that Jesus said it's impossible for anyone to be saved unless God draws him. Why should we be perturbed? We need to pray. And we need to ask God to do a miracle to bring salvation to somebody. I mean, is it any wonder that Jesus tells us that the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and few will find it? That's what he says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 14. And it's not because it's hard to find this gate, but that it's difficult not to overlook. It's so profound, we don't see it. It's not hard to find. It's just difficult not to overlook. It seems so insignificant. It seems too simplistic, even though, as Paul says here, it's the wisdom of God for our salvation. But not everybody will find it. But to those who believe, in verse 21, Paul says, God is pleased to save them. To those that believe. This is the key. The cross can only be understood through the eyes of faith, and this is a gift from God. It's not something that we can work up ourselves. It can only be seen through the eyes of faith, but it's a gift of God. So it says in Ephesians 2.8, it's by grace you've been saved, through faith, and it's not from yourselves. It's a gift from God. It's not by works. There's nothing you can do to get it so that nobody can boast. It's a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. How does it happen? How do you get faith? Well, it's not by works. It's not by effort. It's not trying to work it up. It's not trying to speak it into yourself. Faith exists because God has done something in your heart. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you realize what a miracle it is that you believe? It's a work of God in your life. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. You believe because he gave you the ability to believe. Praise God. Do you ever get pleased about the fact you're saved? Do you realize that it wasn't your decision? 
He drew you to himself and he gave you the faith to believe this crazy message. I love the uh, description that C.S. Lewis gives of his journey to faith in Surprise by Joy. He says this, he says, I was driving to Whipsnade one sunny afternoon. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and when we reached the zoo, I did. (laughs) Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. Emotional is perhaps the last word we can apply to some of the most important events. It was more like when a man, after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. He's come to faith on the journey. He's just woken up. It's a work of God. And I've seen this so many times, you know, doing the Alpha course over the last few years. We've seen people make this incredible journey from sort of interest or sort of intellectual curiosity about Jesus and his claims to faith. And the change, you can't see it happening, but at the same time, it's just so tangible. It's almost visible. You see the change from one week to another, and you see the light has suddenly gone on. And we also see when it hasn't. I was just really heart-rending on the last course, or the one before, Darren will correct me, but there was a guy there, his wife got it. She switched on. She had faith. And he didn't. And he desperately wanted it. But somehow, and he was too honest to make it up and say, yeah, I've got it. But he knew instinctively that something tangible has to take place for there to be faith. The change is tangible, almost visible, but it's certainly not logical. But for those believers from all over the world who've found this small gate, who've stepped into this narrow way, we're united in this faith. We're part of this amazing community of people that believe. And it's real, and it keeps us together. It binds us together. We believe together. We're united in this faith. It centers on the cross, and we're kept by it, kept through it until the saving of our souls. And we need one another's faith as well, don't we? Because sometimes we get disillusioned and disheartened, and we need the fire of one another's faith to stir us again. Has your faith gone out a bit, guys? Has your faith gone a bit mellow? You need the church. We need one another. Let's provoke one another to love and to good works again. Let's stir up the faith that's in us. Are you being saved? Are you being saved? One of the ways that you know that you are is that the cross makes sense to you. It's beginning to make more and more sense to you. Are you being saved? Yes, because the cross is making more and more sense to me. The people that are not being saved, it's foolishness to them. This leads me on to the second point, which is the second thing about the cross that unites us. And the second thing is our need. 
So verse 18 again, so the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, it's foolishness. And this is the main way that the cross will make sense to you. It's this sense of need. I mean, do you know that you're perishing without the cross? Do you know that you need the cross? Do you know that you need it? I mean, you may have been a Christian for many years, but do you still need that, have that painful need of the cross? You keep coming back, I know I need the solution that is there. Do you still have that sense of need? Without it, you're perishing. You see, the cross is a public demonstration of what lies at the end of our sin. It's what lies at the end of our sin. If you continue within sin and there's no repentance, you will die. That's what the Bible says. The wages of sin, the outcome of our lives is death. And it was manifest on the cross. It was shown for all to see. Jesus died because of sin. If you needed any visible reminder, there it is in Jesus on the cross. And you see, we have all sinned. There's not one of us who hasn't. There's not one of us who hasn't sinned. You know, we can say, oh, well, yeah, but I'm a saint now. Yes, I'm a saint, but I still sin. And I still need the cross. In fact, it seems like the more I'm a saint, the more I need the cross. The more aware I become of my shortcomings. My need grows daily. Do you need the cross? I hope so, because you're losing something if you don't. We deserve the death that Jesus died for us. And because of this, we find that the cross is the great leveler. It's the great leveler. See, G.K. Chesterton, he said this, he says, we are all in the same boat in a stormy sea and we owe each other a terrible loyalty. We're all in the same boat, we're all sinners and we all need Jesus desperately. The great leveler. I mean, how about this for something that unites us? How about this for something that unites us? Hey, I'm a sinner. Yeah, so am I. I desperately need Jesus. Yeah, so do I. How about that for something that unites us? I sin. I mess up. All of us sin and continue to sin. And we need the grace of God through the cross. Yes, as Christians. Saints that sin. And it doesn't matter who you are, you know. It doesn't matter if you're a sex addict or an apostle. It doesn't matter if you're a thief or a pastor. It doesn't matter if you're a prostitute or a worship leader or the most gifted businessman in the world. We all need the same thing. We all need to come back to the cross and see Jesus bearing our sins and his, our failings in his body. Otherwise, we're in trouble. And we never get to move on from this. You know, as long as we're still alive in this world, 
we will never stop needing to apply the blood of Jesus to our lives. The cross levels us all. Can you see how this unites us? How it holds us together? Can you see how it gives us compassion for one another? When we are truly conscious of our own sin, our own weakness and our failings, when we remember our own need of forgiveness and the desperation of our hearts, I mean, when we realise what we could be capable of, what we could have got into. I mean, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about where you'd be now if you hadn't met Jesus? I've often frightened myself with this question. You know, as I've listened to people's stories, other people's stories, some of the heart-rending confessions I've heard and and I've trembled saying, there but by the grace of God go I, and I really mean it. I know that just in that moment, in that second, it could have been me. I could have done that. That could have happened to me. You know, I've been tempted. I've sinned in ways that I'd rather you didn't know. I've struggled with things. I've thought things that would shock you. I've let myself down. I've let other people down. I've let Jesus down more times than I'd like to own up to. But you know, I found forgiveness and healing at the cross time and time and time again. I'm so glad, you know, that I know the one who justifies the wicked. Did you know that verse was in the Bible? Romans chapter 4, verse 5 says that God justifies the wicked. I'm so glad. I'm so wicked. And if this is so, if we really come to terms with this, if we really understand what the cross really means, how can we judge other people? How can we not show them mercy when we've been shown so much mercy? Or how can we hold back forgiveness on other people? Look at what you've been forgiven for. How can I put myself above others or think of myself as superior to other people when I know who I am and what I'm capable of? How can I hold out on you when I've been shown such mercy and grace? I'm the chief of sinners, Paul the Apostle, who wrote most of the Bible said, That should be a disqualification for writing the Bible. He boasted about it. I'm the chief of sinners, but I found mercy, and I'm an example of that to you all. That's what he said. If you've also found this to be true, then you can't hold back acceptance from others or forgiveness for others. You can't. If you feel justified, self-justified, and feel better because, well, you know him, 
you don't get it. You really don't know yourself very well at all. The cross is the great leveler. We've all sinned and continue to sin. And that unites us. <laughs> wow, cool, isn't it? Are you encouraged by that? <laughs> Praise God. I'm going to miss out a chunk because I want us to get to the end. Uh, Oh, I don't want to miss that bit out. It's really good. (laughs) The third thing that unites us through the cross is our salvation. Our salvation. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. A man comes to Jesus one day. He was rich and he was incredibly well educated. He even recognized who Jesus was. He had a revelation of who Jesus was. He called him the good teacher, which Jesus picked up and said, wow, you've got something there. He had everything, it seemed, but an assurance that when he died, he would gain eternal life. So he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do? This rich, this clever man who's got it all sorted, what must I do? to make sure that I inherit this life. How can my wealth ensure this for me? He asked. How can my intellect save me? Can I work this out? He says, I've read the Bible, I know every law, and I've kept it all from my youth. I've been very meticulous. But I still don't get it. What more must I do? Jesus said, get rid of everything you have, give it away, all that you depend on, all that you've trusted in, and come and follow me. Give it all away, get rid of the lot, just trust me. It's too simple. A young man went away from Jesus very sad because his resources were great, but in the eyes of Jesus they counted for nothing. When we stand before Jesus, we have nothing, nothing to offer. (sighs) For those that have got a lot, that's a hard thing. But for the rest of us who don't have anything, it's wonderful news. The people at Corinth had fallen into the same trap as the rich man. For them, the church had become a place where the exalted people were the ones that were clever. They were the ones that were rich. They were the ones that were influential. They were the rich people of the church and they were promoted and everybody else was second class, third class. They just got it wrong. They'd they'd adopted the world's standards of assessment. They'd looked at performance indicators and decided that that person was higher than the other person. They got it completely wrong. They promoted the wrong people. See, the church is not of this world. It's an outpost of a very different kingdom where the weak are strong, where the humble are exalted and where the poor are rich. (laughs) And people don't get it. 
And the cross is God's public statement of it. This great advertisement, the broken body of the greatest man who ever lived. This isn't for the great or the wise. It's not for the strong or the clever. It's not for the intellectual. The cross, it was public enough for anybody to see. You didn't need to be clever to see it. You don't need to be clever to see a man strapped to a cross and bleeding like a lump of meat. Anybody can see that. Anybody can get that. Look at the picture. You wouldn't walk past that, would you, and not get it. This is the crude simplicity of the cross. It's shocking and it's brutal enough for everybody to understand. Who, upon seeing this, won't understand pain and ask why? It's universal enough for people everywhere, for, from whatever language, from whatever culture, gender, position in society, mental capacity, you can grasp that. It's really simple. I mean, who doesn't know what it is to experience pain or suffering? Anybody? I don't know anybody. Even getting born is painful. I'm not talking about the mum either. They say it's the most traumatic journey of your life. This isn't for the rich man or the clever man. The cross speaks of this broad sweep of the human condition, such pain and agony and suffering. It's so in your face that people miss the significance of it. I suffer and I get sick and I mess up and life is hard. That's the message of the cross in a nutshell. And it's so obvious Can you look at him and say he doesn't understand suffering? The cross is available to everybody. You've only got to look. John 3.16 says, whoever believes, whoever looks to the cross and believes will be saved. Whoever, it's open to all, it's for all. You don't need to be anybody special to see it or to get it. Not many of us are. No disrespect. And so Paul says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. What were you like? Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that nobody may boast before him. Are there any foolish people here today? Are there any weak people? Are there any failing people? Are there any sinful people, any desperate people that have no hope than the cross is for you? You're qualified. 
You can see the cross. It makes sense to you. Jesus spread out his arms on the cross and he says, welcome. What kind of embrace is that? Welcome to the suffering king. It's this recognition, it's this submission, this understanding of what it really means to be be a believer is what unites us. It's when we recognize our need. When we recognize our need for salvation. It's not clever. It's not highbrow. It's not superior. It's not just for the financial elite. Anybody can look to the cross and be saved. And for them, it's the power of God for salvation. But when the cross is clearly presented to you and remains before you in your life, there follows a certain and necessary humility that comes from the recognition of my need of the cross. Jesus died for me, and it makes sense, because I know it should have been me. And it's in this humility and our continual dependence on the cross that gives it its true power It gives it its true power and it also unifies us because we're all in the same boat. Nobody is any greater than the other. We're all as needy as one another. Where's boasting, Paul says? It looks silly against this, doesn't it? Where's boasting? It's excluded, he says. None of us can save ourselves. None of us can elevate ourselves. None of us can think one is better than the other or one is greater than the other. The ground upon which we stand around the cross is level. And in this message is a tremendous power, I think, that unites us and holds us together. It unites us, first of all, with God himself, and then with one another. And in the book of Revelation, at the end of the story, the people of God are those whose garments have been washed in the blood. Are there any people of God here today? Let's stand, shall we? And let's just worship God. I've asked Tom if he could just lead us in thank you for the cross. It's just a really obvious song to, to, um, to end on. And I want you as well to just come to the cross again. You know, maybe you've forgotten it. (laughs) Maybe you haven't realized. Maybe you thought you got beyond the cross now. Maybe start getting a bit kind of happy about where you're up to. And you've forgotten. I need to come back to this. Maybe you need to repent today. Maybe there's some sin been growing in your life. Maybe there's some habits that have been troubling you. Maybe there's been some boasting, some criticism of others that's judging you know that's the modern word for judging criticizing I want to encourage you to come to the cross just come right back there that's where we need to stay at the foot of the cross I'm just going to pray I'm going to hand over to Tom and I want us to worship Jesus okay Holy Spirit we just come on everyone I know Lord that this is a life changing message today Because if we really get hold of this, it could never be the same again. Lord, the cross changes our lives. There's the BC and the AC, before cross and after cross. 
we want to live after the cross, knowing what it cost you, knowing how much we deserved it, knowing how much you took it and what it cost, and yet knowing how much you've released us and freed us and made us who we are. We're so grateful to you, Father. We're so grateful to you, Jesus. Thank you for the cross.